Hello, and welcome to the Intelligence Download, a podcast from BAE Systems. I'm Ben Tudor, and today we're at our London Business Defence Forum. It's being held at the Shard Building, and it's a shame this isn't a video discussion because you've got a wonderful, misty view of the City of London out of our window. Today, we're discussing the relationship between law enforcement agencies, banks, and regulators, and the point at which they most often come together, suspicious activity reports. I'm joined today by Greg Coleman of Coleman Worldwide Advisors and Stephen Blackburn, Senior Financial Crime Consultant at BA Systems. Greg is probably best known as the FBI agent responsible for the investigation of Jordan Belfort. Um, Greg, would you like to uh, just uh, talk through some of the other things that you've done and the amazing uh, work you do now? Yeah, sure. Good morning. In, in my prior life, before becoming a consultant, I actually was a special agent with the FBI. I spent my entire career in the New York City office, which really is the financial hub of the U.S., and I worked financial crime cases, and it was during my tenure there that I came upon Jordan Belfort, more um, widely known as the Wolf of Wall Street. So it was, it was an interesting career. It was a great career, spanned almost 26 years, um, but it went in the blink of an eye. And Stephen, you're uh, a consultant at BA Systems. You want to talk a little bit about your work? I am, yes, a financial crime consultant. I've worked with um, banks and other financial institutions for around 12 years with BAE Systems and other vendors of compliance, fraud, products. I currently work mainly in a pre-sales role, helping our customers or our prospective customers understand the value of systems and technology in helping them to uncover financial crime, particularly in uh, AML, transaction monitoring, and applying that technology in their context to, to help them to hopefully catch criminals. Great. So I suppose that the first question I have is, um, a suspicious activity report, and Greg, you've seen quite a few, I'm guessing, in the quarter century or more that you, you worked at the FBI, um, is something to a bank that's, that's quite a, not a chore, but it's a task. Um, how are SARS viewed from a law enforcement perspective? Um, what's sure. I think right at the outset, um, let me let me express my opinion as it relates to the SARS system in the United States. And I did use this system pretty extensively. Um, almost from the time it was created, um, I believe that it is the best financial crime database of potential criminal cases or terrorism finance and related cases that exist, hands down. Um, I think it's a wonderful system. Uh, I think uh, stewardship of the system is very important. Uh, I think regulation of the system is very important because of the sensitive information that's in there. Uh, and I know it's a financial burden to the financial community. But I can tell you from the person who actually benefits from these when I was an agent, it is the best system that exists. I think it was one of the greatest creations that uh, certainly our government, the U.S. government, ever put together. So really, on the message to, to banks is that it is worthwhile doing this work. It does have a benefit to society. I think so. Um, I completely understand the position that financial institutions are in, right? Because it even goes beyond banks in the United States. I mean, we have other institutions, brokerage firms, for example, that are required to file SARS. 
I get that it's a burden. Um, and I think training of their employees is one of the ways that you can reduce costs in these. If you have a group of people who are working with the SARS who understand exactly what law enforcement wants from them and understands what it is that, first of all, they're investigating, right? Most SARS start through transaction monitoring, computerized transaction monitoring. It kicks out an alert. The alert's investigated. And then a decision is made, file or do not file. I think that process before the file do not file is quite critical. If the people are trained, if they're knowledgeable, they can go through these at a much faster pace and produce a much better product at a much lower cost. Fantastic. And Stephen, you've seen this from a supplier perspective. Um, what do you see banks and, and specifically the, the compliance teams thinking yeah, about this? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think most banks see it as... Um, an onerous task and part of that is because of the the way that we generate um, alerts into the system from technology there's the issue of the false positive ratios so you have maybe less than one in a hundred alerts generating a SAR which is quite, quite a low figure and obviously every alert has to be then investigated so I think banks do see it as a as a big task um, most of the banks that, that I've spoken to actually do take it very seriously, but they also have their, you know, commercial uh, back, back, back line to, to meet as well. Um, so, so there is always that balancing act. Uh, um, I think one thing that you mentioned about not just being financial institutions and banks, and there, there was a big push in the UK uh, just a few weeks ago, around the filing of SARS by people like estate agents and casinos, you know, other organizations that can take part in that jigsaw and help to complete the picture. So which, I, you know, obviously your experience and background in, in looking at SARS and using that as a database for intelligence, um, you know, the, the, as much of the jigsaw as you can get in there is, is helpful. I think there's a concept out there, right? The path of least resistance. And I think this is why regulation of other industries outside of banks that are involved in moving um, more than just cash, right? Whether we want to call it assets or proceeds, whatever term you want to apply to it. It's important to also require them to file SARS because criminals find the path of least resistance. If banks have all these onerous reporting requirements and it's difficult and they're looking out for these transactions, the criminals will find another way to do it, whether it be through insurance or real estate or now cryptocurrencies, of course, right, is, yeah. is the big one, the big risk that's out there. They'll find that path of least resistance. It's, I, I think it's not wise. It's certainly not fair, but it's not wise to regulate banks and require them to file SARS, but not require cryptocurrency exchanges to file SARS, um, because the criminals will end up there ultimately anyway. So I, I think it, it certainly the the requirement for SARS I don't think has been settled yet. It's still growing. It's still we're still learning. Even in the United States, we're very aggressive in the United States with SARS, but I don't think it's at its um, maturity yet by by any stretch of the imagination. How do you think that um, organizations can see the value of filing SARS? Because I, I, I don't know what it's like in the States. I, I guess it's very similar. But here we have the banks saying um, regulators are pushing us to file SARS. We need to file, you know, 
as much as we'd rather file uh, an, in, in, an invalid or a, a you know not useful SAR than have the regulators come back to us and say, why didn't you pick that up? And the regulators, are, are, on the other hand, are saying, you're filing too many SARs that are useless, uh, you know, get your acting together. How, how can we encourage, um, you know, a more practical approach in terms of the value of SAR filing? And uh, you mentioned training of uh, people in terms of how to file better SARs and increase the quality of what they're filing. I think there's three components in this. One is regulators, one is the industry, and one is law enforcement. And there's conflicts among these. For example, even among the regulator group itself, certainly in the United States, and I'm sure it's uh, true here, there are multiple regulators. And one group will come in and tell a financial institution, you do this. The next one comes in and says, well, why are you doing this? You should be doing this. And I understand the financial institution is stuck in the middle. From the law enforcement perspective, there is more that we could do also. And I say we because I still, it's hard for me to get out of my law enforcement mode. But when I say those terms like we and us, um, clearly I'm in a consultant now, but uh, the FBI agent in me lives on. Feedback from agents and from investigators, whether it be the FBI or any other agency, is lacking. Some of that is required by law. I mean, there are prohibitions on uh, disclosing certain things. But I am a big believer that um, law enforcement should provide more feedback to institutions as to what's really going on. Because from an institutional perspective, they file the SAR, it goes into a big black hole, they never hear anything, it never goes anywhere, at least as far as they're aware, and they wonder, well, what's really the point of this exercise? It's difficult. I mean, the, pro the legal prohibitions on investigators and law enforcement in the U.S. is it's, it's pretty strong. Mm -hmm. um, but I think once cases are completed, once they're done, once they've been adjudicated, um, I think those investigators and, and the prosecutors also, we really should go back and explain to the institutions how valuable their filings were. I can tell you in my consultant life, this is one of the things that I do. I do SAR program reviews, for example. And to address one of your issues about the quantity of SARs, I, I did a consulting project for a very large bank. They were filing approximately 1,200 SARs per month. And that represented less than 1% of the total uh, transaction alerts that were coming out, less than 1%. So that tells you that really 99% of what that institution is reviewing is worthless. It's not suspicious. Um, and so it needs to be addressed in a different way. But that less than 1% in most cases turns out to be valuable. Um, I can tell you I've taken SARS, a single SAR, and turned it into multi-million dollar laundering, money laundering investigations from a single SAR. Um, but what I do now is I actually go through the process with the institutions, the investigation process from the point that the alert is issued. Um, we go through the mindset. What are they looking for? Because what's happening is, especially in the U.S., and I think based on what you're saying, it's happening here Un unknown and unusual do not equal suspicious. And if they have something that's unknown, and one of the, for example, one of the areas that you have an unknown quite often is in correspondent banking, where the 
the bank at the top of the chain is reviewing transactions that are transactions of one of their customers. Yeah. So the ultimate transaction is the customer of their customer. And they have unknowns about that transaction. Now, they don't want to spend tremendous resources in digging up all of that information. Maybe they send a request for information to their client. Maybe it never comes back. Maybe it comes back in an unsatisfactory manner. But those are just being filed as what we call defensive SARS. There's really nothing in there that's suspicious. They're just saying, we don't know. I don't believe those should be filed. Defensive SARS are a big problem in the United States, uh, especially in instances when it's, things are just unknown or they may be unusual but not necessarily suspicious. On the other end of the spectrum, institutions have to remember, you don't need to prove anything. You're only reporting your suspicions. So it's that balancing act between doing too little and too much that always has to be perpetually fine-tuned within the institutions. Defensive SARS are just clogging up the system. They have no value. Um, during my days at the FBI, I literally could take about five to seven seconds by looking at the narrative of the SAR, and I could tell you in five to seven seconds, this is a garbage SAR. Never should have been filed. It's a waste of time. It has no value. It's taking up computer space and computer resources. But those ones that I would find, again, that less than 1%, they were nuggets. They were golden nuggets, um, and they turned out to be very valuable um, in my job on a daily basis. So I suppose that leads to the next question, um, which is what should institutions be doing to make their filings more effective? How can they do a good job? Um, you know, could you illustrate that perhaps with a, a couple of examples of best practice? Sure. I, I think number one is to understand what it is that law enforcement and regulators want from these SARS. So that when you're reviewing the transactions, you're not only looking for indices as to whether or not they're suspicious, but you're looking for the things that want to be stated to law enforcement and regulators. I think, again, I, I go back to training. I, th I think that's a big part of the process. Hiring, it's important that you hire and train people properly. For example, I've seen situations where banks go through consolidations and mergers, and Maybe they have a consumer financial loan department that's, that, that writes auto loans, but they're exiting that business. And now they take those people and they make them SAR analysts. And they have no clue about the SAR system because they've been writing auto loans for the bank or processing auto loans. And now they're SAR analysts. Well, that's a problem if you're not training them properly. And it, really, it leads to products that aren't good products. I think all of it starts with, with training and education. Um, from there, liaison, liaison with regulators and law enforcement. Somebody should be designated within the financial institutions to reach out to law enforcement on a regular basis, whether it be monthly or quarterly or even more active, if that's the case, um, to establish communications. And I'll tell you another reason why that's important. When a financial institution comes up with a really important SAR, they should not just file the SAR. They should reach out to either the regulator or the law enforcement people and bring it to their attention directly. The last thing we want is a terrorism financing related SAR to just be filed 
and no notification is made to law enforcement. And the institution just hopes that they come upon this thing. Remember, there is thousands and thousands and thousands of SARS filed every single day. Searching through those is getting better. Um, for example, you know, the computer systems that BAE creates and uh, dealing with SARS and, and alerts and so forth, it makes the life of a regulator and, a, and an FBI agent much easier uh, by being able to search on parameters. I mean, remember in the early days of the SARS system when I used it, it was paper. Everything was paper. You would request the information. It would take weeks to come to you. It would be in paper form. It was, none of it was automated. That has all been changed. You can search on names, dates, date of births, transaction dates, locations, zip codes, phone numbers, you name it, and you can sit and play with that data and through very simple programs, by downloading that into programs like Excel, you can sort and filter and paste and cut and paste and come up with some pretty clear pictures pretty quickly. You, men you mentioned the, um, the trying to get institutions to uh, take SARS more seriously, not, ju not just filing them, but, but also interacting with regulators. In terms of uh, what, what we get termed as super SARS, what, what's your view on part of that process being reaching out to other financial institutions? I, I know, again, US, UK has made it very much easier for institutions to share that information without, without coming against the, the, the data privacy type issues. Um, what, what's your view? Is, is that a good thing? Is that going to help? I think it's an excellent thing. I think it's better than good. I think it's excellent. Because when you put a puzzle together, there's multiple pieces, and those pieces may not all be at one institution. In fact, they are rarely ever all at one institution. Um, criminals understand that. Criminals move. This is why we have placement, layering, and integration. It's that center step where funds are moved around through multiple accounts in multiple jurisdictions um, to disguise it. That's done intentionally. The sharing of information, in my mind, is fantastic. I think in our, in our system, we have various safe harbor provisions for financial institutions on filing SARS and sharing information. And I think that was done very well. As far as actually drafting a SAR, I, I've read online in various postings that there's concern that, well, institution A may want to say one thing and institution B may want to say something else. Ultimately, if there's a dispute, it's very easy to resolve. File, each follow your own SARs. That's fine. If you cannot agree on language or terminology in a single consolidated SAR, that's fine. If your system is set up anything like the U.S., it isn't difficult for an FBI agent to query FinCEN, which is our FIU, your financial intelligence unit in the U.S. It's not difficult for an agent to query the system and come up with two individual SARs versus one consolidated one. Is it nice to have a consolidated SAR? Sure, it's great to have but it doesn't make it impossible. Remember the basic tenet behind money laundering, follow the money. So even if you start with institution A who has filed a SAR and B who has not, it will lead you to B if you follow the money. You'll end up at that second institution. You'll just get there slower than if there's a consolidated SAR. And I think as far as prevention, right? Most of what we've spoken about is 
these things have already occurred. They've gone through the system and now we're reporting them. I think a big component of this, which does not get enough attention, is the early stages of preventing it from ever actually getting into the system. I think the answer there is very simple, KYC, knowing your customer. That, I think, could prevent a lot of it, but not a lot of attention. I mean, that's not sexy. It's not glamorous. You don't see as much attention being placed on KYC, in my opinion, as there should be. Because if you can prevent these things from ever getting into the system, and 100% is the goal, but it's never going to be reached. Regulators and law enforcement have to be realistic about that. We want to strive for 100% perfection in preventing dirty money from entering the system. If we end up at 75 or 80% or 90%, that's better. Because if we start at 75 and 80 and we end up at 50, it allows a lot of transactions into the system. Prevent them from ever getting in. Once they're in, by doing proper SAR filing, get it to the, the regulators, the law enforcement, the liaison. You create an entire package from A to Z. Sharing information, I think, um, is a good thing. And I think it's good that you have it in your legislation here. Yeah, I, I think that your comments on KYC are uh, pretty useful. Uh, personally, I'm seeing an upswell of interest and, and uh, queries about KYC and, and how, again, how technology can help um, banks, other financial institutions. And interestingly, it, it's, it's down more at the, the smaller institution size, the smaller organizations, perhaps some of the non-bank organizations that are actually starting to take that seriously. So I, I think that, that, is, that is good news. Well, for example, I'll give you some real life examples. I did a consulting project where when an account is opened at that institution, they describe why the account was opened. Unfortunately, you know, 10, 20 years ago, um, KYC wasn't really heard of. I mean, it wasn't talked about and money laundering wasn't as big as it is now. And so banks would routinely open up accounts and list bill pay. You know, paying bills, that's the purpose of the account. Well, that's what leads to a lot of alerts being kicked out of the system. When you have activity in the account, which isn't bill pay, but it's not even suspicious. It's a really pretty routine activity. And not only that, when you open an account 15 years ago and time has passed, when, when do most institutions ever go back and follow up and update that information? Now, that's changing, of course. As, as more pressure is applied to institutions, um, these type of routine updates come about. But most of the ones that I see, it's the descriptions that are in there are so vague and so thin that it really doesn't provide much assistance. And that's leading to problems by kicking out alerts. And those alerts are adjudicated as being not suspicious. I guess the other issue around KYC as well is it's not just banks. You know, banks are the choke point. That's where regulatory and law enforcement focus has been for very good reason. You know, it's where the money flows through. But you've got all these gatekeepers. You've got you know, lawyers, you've got real estate agents and so on and so forth who perform a KYC function in some way, shape or form. Um, you know, what's the change there? What do you think, you know, how, how could they do the, you know, do this job better of, of, of doing it? I think, you know, looking at, um, I think it was an NCA report that, that you passed me, the number of institutions outside banks filing mm. SARS in the last year has been very, you know, it's a, a tiny fraction yes. of, of the work yeah. that banks do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, certainly they, they, they need to take it a lot more seriously. Um, I don't know because most of them are not necessarily regulated. There isn't that pressure 
from the regulators to, to be able to force them into doing things. But, but certainly there does need to be, a, I think, a, a, a consensus about this is the right thing to do. Sure. I think, as, it was, as we said earlier in the, the broadcast, um, it has to flow beyond just banking borders. It has to be brokerage firms. It has to be casinos. It has to be cryptocurrency exchanges. Um, do we want to go as deep into the art world, for example, or the diamond business? Well, those are all places I can tell you the diamond industry, the precious metals industry is a great way to launder money. Artwork is a great way to launder money. Racing horses is a great way to launder money. Remember, as, as we, as law enforcement and investigators and regulators, put a stop to one type of uh, fraud or scheme, uh, they just create new ones. Um, technology nowadays is making it faster, uh, making it much more difficult because of the compressed time that these things can occur within and the, that you can shoot money around the world so quickly. But it has to. It, it has to. It has to expand to other. Other. I mean, real estate. Yeah. You know, the difference being. And, and actually, let me let me go back for one moment, if I may. The issue of cash. In society, the the point in the United States when we created the Bank Secrecy Act, was to trace illicit flows of cash through the banking system. That's why we have these reporting requirements. For more than $10,000 in cash, we report a form. Yeah. And that relates to not only banking, but that's also you know, purchasing vehicles or boats, uh, transporting in or out of the country. And in fact, transporting in or out of the country is even greater because it's not just cash, it's monetary instruments, which would include bearer bonds and uh, checks made payable to cash and diamonds and, and other valuable things like that. The, the Bank Secrecy Act we, requires those reports. And there's been a lot of pressure from institutions saying, well, $10,000 is very low. Why do we have this so low? It hasn't been adjusted through time. I don't necessarily think it should be. I understand it's, it's a significant burden on institutions. But what it does, if I can give an analogy, it's like a, a hunting analogy I'll give you. You know, when you go hunting quail, you send the dog into the bush, the dog flushes the quail out, and boom, you, you shoot the quail. That's what happens to criminals. That form, that Bank Secrecy Act form, flushes them out of the brush. And that's when law enforcement can get them. If you increase that to, say, $100,000 versus $10,000, well, they they can launder a lot more money before any threshold is ever met. So I think 10000 is low, but I think it's valuable to keep it low because it forces their hand. It forces them out of the shadows. It forces them to do something differently. If you have $10 million and you want to put it into the bank and you try structuring it in at 9800 9500 9600 under that $10,000 threshold, well, that's now a law in the United States also, right? Avoiding that form because it says the government wants this form. If you do something to prevent the government from getting the form, then now that's, not, that's a crime. That's punishable just as much as if you did the, the underlying crime. I think it's good. I think that reporting threshold should stay where it is. It's very helpful in forcing the hand and forcing them to do something that's different and it's uh, it's good. 
Do you, do you think that will change um, in, in the advent of, um, I, I guess, what we, what we would call intelligence-led, um, detection intelligence-led anti-money laundering, where we're actually using some uh, machine learning techniques, uh, artificial intelligence techniques, to actually try and flush out that activity rather than having a fixed level, um, sort of using much more you know, advanced techniques across the board to, to, to achieve that purpose? Look, I think that technology clearly helps. The, the mass of data that has to be gone through in order to find and detect patterns is getting to the point where it's almost impossible for a human being to do without the assistance of that kind of technology. I believe it's that technology will only get better with history. I think it will become an important part, but I think it would be a huge mistake if they rely too heavily on technology and not on individuals. Individuals asking simple questions like why, that, that's one of the greatest questions ever, why? Why is it done this way? Why was it not done that way? Will ultimately be the key to most of this. The human aspect of it I don't think should and I don't think it ever can be removed from this process. But it's clearly getting to the point where it's just too great. This big data world that we're in it's just too great to handle on an individual basis. And you, you're going to need these things to sort of filter out the information as, it, as it's created. Going back to the cash, that's even in the cryptocurrency world. In my view, as related to cryptocurrencies, they're a threat now in, in different ways. But they're not the real threat that they can become. And I'll tell you why from an investigator's perspective. There are two major vulnerabilities related to cryptocurrencies. The first part is when you take cash, you bring it into a cryptocurrency exchange, and you create it into a cryptocurrency. Let's use Bitcoin just to make it simple. Somebody brings in cash or a check or a wire transfer, but if it's cash, that's the untraceable part. That's the risky part. If you're going to bring a wire transfer, now we have a paper trail to lead backwards. If you bring in cash, you convert it to a cryptocurrency. Well, that's a risk there because anything above $10,000 gets reported. If you pull it out of the cryptocurrency and change it back into dollars, for example, or pounds over here, that's another vulnerability because you're going, there's cash at the beginning and cash at the end. I believe the real risk will come in when people actually desire to keep their assets, their proceeds in cryptocurrencies. Virtually nobody is out there buying products with cryptocurrencies. At this, yeah, Is there a wayward person here or there that's buying a pizza or some clothing or a home? You know, you have these little isolated transactions. Yes. But on a grand scale, it's just not occurring. Cryptocurrencies are being used primarily for, for people who are speculating in the markets to make money or by criminals. I mean, and the largest part of it is criminals. So that day when it arrives where people eliminate uh, that second part, that second part of converting a cryptocurrency back to a fiat currency, that's eliminated. Now, now the risk has become greater, right? Because we only have that first part. And if we ever go to a completely cryptocurrency uh, type of monetary system, that's a great problem, right? Because now you've eliminated two sources of flushing the quail out of the brush. And it'll all be cryptocurrency. Although, having said that, within the um, you know, the, the blockchain type world, you can follow things through 
mm. within the blockchain without knowing the endpoints, without being identi- be able to identify the endpoints. Yes. So may, maybe we could get better at, at following those patterns and, and then absolutely. linking them to the jigsaw that, that's, right. that's around. This is a never-ending process. Um, the bad guys create something, we unwind it. And I say, when I say we, I mean, I'm talking about, for example, BA systems through their, their um, uh, computerized systems, the institutions, law enforcement, investigators, regulators. Bad guys create, we unwind. They create, we unwind. We, and it will go on into perpetuity. It will go on into perpetuity. It's a, it's a constant battle. Um, we'll never eliminate the threat as long as money has value because it'll, it'll go on, yeah. the perpetuity. So just to, to wrap up, um, if the two of you had a message to financial institutions and specifically to the investigators, the John and Jane Doe's who come in every day, put their cup of coffee in the desk and start looking for signs of money laundering, start writing those SARS, what would that message be? You know, based on your experience in law enforcement, consultancy, what would you have to say? Um, for, for me, it would. I think my my big message is don't just rely on the technology, um, but you know it, it's down to people. It's down to intuition sometimes, but but also the hard slog of actually uh, taking the time to go through the things that are presented to you by the technology and really evaluate them and and work through what, what is valuable and what what's not. And I would second that. I would second all of that information. I would also say embrace it. It's here. It's not going to go away. You can complain about it. You can complain about the cost. We all recognize that it's a cost center, not a revenue producer. But at the end of the day, what we're doing is we're protecting our countries and our economies, which are important. Um, So, again, I would agree with all of the information you would say. I would say embrace this. Work with law enforcement. Work with regulators. And they should work with you. It should not be a a one-way street. And at the end of the day, I think it's very easy and and can. I don't think this is an impossible task to create a system which works very well and does what it's designed to do. So, uh, Greg Coleman of Coleman Worldwide Advisors and Stephen Blackburn of BA Systems, thank you both very much for your thoughts. And many thanks for listening to the Intelligence Download. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast via any podcast platform um, or go to basystems.com forward slash banking insights for more insight into the world of banking compliance and fraud.